This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A new report for Health Canada says Ottawa needs to hike its tobacco taxes if it wants to meet the uh, long-term target of smoking reduction to just 5% of the population. Um, but of course, as soon as you start chatting with uh, about anything in regard to lowering of taxes, immediately the discussion moves to contraband. Uh, let's bring in Michael Chayton. He's a faculty member at Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. And thank you very much. Glad to be here. So obviously, when, as I just mentioned, when the discussion of uh, higher taxes on cigarettes comes up, immediately the discussion moves to contraband. Uh, is this uh, the full answer or just one spoke in the wheel? Uh, it, well, we've known for a long time that uh, increasing taxes and, and tax ex- taxation as a policy is one of our most effective tools at reducing the prevalence of smoking. And we know as well that the tobacco industry often uses the, the threat of contraband uh, tobacco, real or imagined, um, to, to argue against these increases in taxes. Uh, that being said, we just had the contraband people on uh, not too long ago and, uh, and said like it's, it's up to 40% and in some areas it's up as high as 60% of, of at least one in three are, are the cigarettes consumed or contraband. Can we ignore those stats? Well, we certainly can't ignore the problem of contraband. And I'm not totally sure about their, the stats that come from the uh, Convenience Store Association and other um, tobacco industry-associated uh, studies. Um, our own research suggests that the contraband problem is more closer to about 15% of the population, and that contraband use actually peaked around 2008 and has been improving since then. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, though, that government actually reduced the taxes on cigarettes because of the contraband problem. They did. Well, in the 1990s, uh, they, the government uh, uh, took a huge cut on, uh, on the taxes of cigarettes in order to um, at least attempt to address the contraband problem of, of cigarettes that had been um, shipped across the border by the tobacco industry in order to, for them to uh, sell them cheaply back in Ontario and Quebec. Um, and so when they, raised it, when they lowered the taxes, what we saw is a huge number of young people start smoking. Um, an estimate suggests that tens of thousands of, uh, of people will have, uh, will have died because of that policy of, of cutting taxes dramatically. We know consistently that increases in taxes will reduce rates of smoking. Um, and in fact, uh, those increases of taxes will also increase revenues, uh, even if there is some um, additional contraband that exists. Now, do we know if it's a decrease in smoking or just the decrease in the amount of legal cigarettes bought? We we know uh, we know that it's both. So we are. It, it, it depends. The way that um, well, it can't be both, and it can't be. It depends. So what's <laughs> what's the answer there? So uh, it it. Uh, it, it is. It is always. It is always a decrease in the number of cigarettes smoked by people. So we measure that by asking people about how many cigarettes they smoke and whether or not they're a smoker. And those answers are generally not are not impacted by contraband or whether or not people use contraband. People are not uh, that concerned about about telling people that on a survey. We do see variation in terms of uh, of uh, the numbers of cigarettes sold, but generally the the and and. Those, those do decline with increases in actual price of cigarettes. So are you confident that higher taxes won't lead to a higher contraband problem? They won't. The issues of contraband are, are independent of, of, of the levels of taxation. So we see globally that... How, how, how can you say that? 
<laughs> because the, the issues of contraband are usually about governance issues. They're issues about... Wait a um, sec, wait a sec. If you're a smoker and you're paying X... I don't even know what a carton of cigarettes or a pack of smokes even cost now. But uh, if you're going to go in and, and, and you're a smoker and this is your daily habit and you're going to spend X number of dollars a, a week or, or whatever on cigarettes and you can get them for you know, a, a third of the price or half the price or whatever by buying them in a giant baggie, I mean, my goodness, uh, th- there's certainly lots seen doing that, No. There, there are, and, and I mean, it depends. So, and, and again, it, how, how can you say 15% when their numbers are as high as 40 or, or, or 50? Well, I'm really suspicious about their methodology. So the way that, that uh, the latest survey came out is that they, um, they did a, 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 what's called a butt study. Yeah, butt check. Where they, they picked up cigarette butts from uh, various places uh, around the province. And so there are a couple of concerns of that and just information that they didn't release. So we have colleagues that have done similar studies, and it's, and it's really challenging to actually identify a contraband cigarette from the butt. It contraband's not a particular, any particular brand. It's about whether or not that that cigarette has, been, has had taxes paid on it. So you can't actually tell that from, from the butt itself. So you can make a guess. You can't tell if the butt has had tax paid on it? I no, think, I think no. Some, I think some have generic markings and usually others don't, no? So the, the tax stamp goes on the packaging, not on the... No, on but can't you tell a contraband cigarette from a generic cigarette just in, in just the way it's, it's constructed and, and just markings on it? Not necessarily. So a lot of contraband comes from the major tobacco companies that is sold um, uh, tax-exempt on reserve and, and, then, and then bought by people who come to reserve and visit and buy their players or Maurier or, or many other different types of brands. What about that, those that are working in the uh, 50 or so illegal uh, uh, cigarette manufacturing establishments around the province? Well, the major manufacturing, I mean, it's, it, there are some, but it's also many of those brands that we see are actually legal to sell on reserve. So if and legal to buy by people on First Nations uh, who live off reserve. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very complex problem. Yeah, but you know, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out the number the number of people on the reserve versus the number of 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 manufacturers there are that it's greatly out of proportion it's that this gr- product has to be going off the reserve in order to generate revenue. Absolutely. And the ma- I mean it's beyond the, the the manufacturers on reserve, but the manufacturers off reserve also um, distribute millions and millions of cigarettes uh, to these reserves, like thousands of cigarettes per person, um, that are clearly not being um, not being sold, uh, intention to be smoked on the reserve themselves. So uh, again, uh, how, how does this problem seem like it's slowing down? To me, this is not an issue about taxation, but about enforcement. Uh, enforcement is very important, and we've seen um, in Quebec especially has uh, uh, had real success in in increasing its enforcement rate of uh, of contraband, of, of doing things like uh, having fines um, and having officers who are able to uh, um, um, actually deal with contraband when they see it, um, and that's that's something that's a uh, uh, you know. That is being I'm, that is being considered for Ontario as well. Uh, 
what is Quebec doing right that Ontario isn't? Why, why is this an issue for one and not the other? Well, I think it's an issue for both provinces, and both provinces have some of the same uh, uh, issues that, that, that affect in terms of supply and proximity to uh, some of the manufacturers. But it appears that Quebec has a much better handle on it than Ontario does. And they, they have got a, an earlier start on, on increasing their level of enforcement, and again, on, on increasing the numbers of people who are dedicated to uh, enforcing the contraband issue um, and uh, having the tools available for those officers to be able to um, address the situation properly. Is this politics rather than health? Uh, the, the, which part of it? Well, what you've just discussed in regard to uh, contraband tobacco. Yes, I mean, I think it's... I think one and, in, thing, and enforcement of it. Well, uh, in, enforcement is always, is always challenging, and I think that the... Um, uh, apparently not. Easy. Apparently not for Quebec. Michael. Well, it was it was very challenging for Quebec, um, and it's also cha- it's it, it, and they, they went through some uh, significant uh, issues in order to, to to be able to get to where they are, and they're still they're still struggling with it as well. Um, and but ultimately, the the issues around contraband are political. Um, I think one thing that you can identify the politicalization of the issue is that the problem with contraband tobacco from a public health perspective is that it's cheap. Mm-hmm. And you can identify the people who are not truly concerned about contraband if their solution to contraband is to lower the prices and to make it cheaper, because that is only going to exacerbate the public health issue. There are certainly things we can do in terms of enforcement and that we can do better uh, with enforcement and government-to-government relations and, um, uh, and addressing things like the, the sort of widespread availability of tobacco. Uh, but uh, uh, the ultimate problem with contraband is that it, that it does lower the prices, and, and that's ultimately got to be keeping top of mind. Um, is it ironic, uh, some have said it is, that we're talking about taxing cigarettes while we're legalizing marijuana? Well, I think we're also talking about taxing marijuana as well. <laughs> so so uh, why will we not have the same problems with contraband marijuana as we do with uh, contraband tobacco? And considering that that's where the supply is coming from at this point, how do you shut that off? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, a, that is an issue. And I, I think we've seen this all well. We've dealt this with... Um, with the issue of alcohol as well, back after uh, with the introduction of the LCBO, and when we saw that uh, that that introduction of a highly regulated um, but available system of of controlling uh, substances was effective at driving out the the uh, illegal market. Uh, right now, in tobacco, we have a, a sort of an unregulated market um, in in the way that we sell tobacco. There are sort of technically licenses, but you can you can buy and sell it everywhere. There are no regulations on, on who can sell tobacco or where you, where you can sell it that are, are in any way effective. Um, and uh, w- as we introduce marijuana, that we're, we'll start to see some sort of system that will hopefully do the same thing we've seen in alcohol by developing a system that will control um, and regulate uh, 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 an appropriate sp- supply of, uh, of these substances. Uh, many, uh, we were talking about the reserve scenario, many uh, you know, point to past treaties and how it is their uh, right to do what they're doing in regard to tobacco. Are we just to assume that those same sort of rights and privileges would uh, be uh, extended to marijuana? 
it, I, I'm not sure, uh, to be honest, about uh, about how those discussions would go. I mean, it's certainly that that tobacco is a, has a unique role in the traditional um, heritage of many First Nations. Um, that is uh, unique compared to, to marijuana, uh, both from a religious perspective and a cultural perspective. And mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, there's a very deep tradition that may or may not apply to marijuana. Uh, so do you foresee these same issues, uh, five years down the road that we're having with, uh, contraband tobacco and general health concerns that, that, that we have with tobacco now, uh, five years from now when marijuana is legalized? I'm not sure if it, uh, how it. I think it depends on what happens with to, with tobacco as we as we uh, legalize marijuana. Um, I think the opportunity for marijuana is uh, we're developing um, a new system from scratch, and we're starting to think about what makes sense uh, for the ways in which we sell drugs like this. And it gives us an opportunity to reflect on, on the ways that we, we sell tobacco as well, the way mm-hmm. that, we, that we tax them, the way that we um, allow promotion, and, and the way that we sell them. And so, uh, you know, it, it's an opportunity, I think, to reflect on, on, on how we're, we're dealing with, with, the, with the drug of, of tobacco. Uh, do you think this, uh, the legalization of marijuana will shrink the use of tobacco or increase it? I think that's a really interesting question, and I think the important thing is to keep monitoring and understanding about how the use of one substance might affect the other. We know that historically many people mix tobacco and marijuana. There are about 30% of Ontario smokers or Ontario marijuana smokers uh, report using tobacco um, with their marijuana, uh, and many of those people don't consider themselves to be tobacco smokers. Uh, however, with legalization, we might see an increase in other forms of, of marijuana use uh, in terms of edibles, in terms of uh, vaping marijuana that, that might actually lead to decreases in some tobacco use. Uh, I heard somebody just recently say on a program that uh, uh, drinkables is something to be concerned about, that that is the next big thing in this industry. Uh, it, it's certainly possible uh, it, that that uh, sort of marijuana can be ingested in, in a number of different ways. You don't see um, drinkables for uh, for tobacco products mm. because you uh, uh, it, you can't actually process it for the liver, so it has to go into your lungs or to your blood. So so that hasn't been a concern um, or or an issue or the type of product. But it, for marijuana, we could see those types of things, and it really depends on on how. Um, how the government chooses to regulate those sort of novel products. Michael Chaitin has been with us, uh, faculty member, Dalla School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Speaking of polls, and, uh, you know, uh, when the Prime Minister was uh, in the election campaign, it was all about sunny ways for the struggling middle class. Middle class, middle class, middle class. That's all we heard about during the campaign. How do we help the middle class and those get into it? That's all it was about. Now, of course, those same people are being painted as rich elites who are, you know, uh, getting or taking advantage of, of, of tax breaks while finding new ways to tax us. 
To talk more about all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in, the, in history at the University of Toronto. He is with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time again. We greatly appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So, uh, obviously, uh, a new poll out that says that, you know, as Canadians really probably aren't that much interested in the day-to-day politics of what goes on uh, in the country, they, they, they certainly are well aware of their finance minister and, and, and who, and, uh, of course, uh, who, he, who he is. And as I mentioned, uh, now the, you know, uh, Morneau and Trudeau are, are sort of being painted as rich elites uh, and are taking advantage of, uh, of tax breaks uh, while the rest of us are, are, are just trying to hang on to our money. What happened here? How has this attitude changed? Well, you know, I think you, you, you make a, a really strong point that there was a narrative from the, the election, and that narrative, I think, was bound to collapse because the narrative, I feel, was misleading. You know, Trudeau from the base talked about the middle class, yet, you know, his middle class tax cut is proposed during the election. And this got some play in the media, but frankly, not enough. Uh, play from from the mainstream media was that the bottom 75% of tax filers would see no benefit. So, you know, that from the start there, the, the you know, Trudeau was really giving a tax break to one, the wealthy, because any middle class tax cut is also an upper class tax cut, because, you know, of marginal rates. Um, and, you know, those who are already in the middle class, effectively ignoring all those trying to join it in his language. But, um, you know, I think it's especially difficult here because Trudeau and Morneau, you know, they are economic elites. They're men of privilege. They're men of economic and social privilege, the likes of which most Canadians will never get to enjoy. And I think that, you know, I actually agree with a lot of their tax proposals, and I don't necessarily see them as targeting middle-class people. I think doctors, um, many doctors, have abused the system, and I think that that was a good policy. The problem for the Trudeau liberals is that when they were going after the 10%, they were ignoring the 0.1%. And I think that's where they opened themselves up from attacks both on the left and the right. And on the one hand, you have, you know, the coordinated business lobby um, going after them from the right. And then all of a sudden, you now have this view that, look, what about capital gains taxes? What about estate taxes? What about offshore funds? What about the Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers? And it's a perfect storm combined with the fact that you know, in Canada, we don't really know a lot about our cabinet ministers, but one of the ones that we do often know a bit about, you know, at least going back to, to John Turner and Paul Martin, is, is the finance minister. It's always a big profile, and it's all kind of converged personally and politically on Bill Morneau. And that's why, despite the government, you know, polling in majority territory right now in a lot of polls, he's personally very unpopular. Uh, we all want, uh, or we often talk and say that we want experts, we want experts in charge, people, not just politicians, but people who know what's going on in, in, in the industry that they're involved in, and certainly we want experts in charge of our money. Uh, then we complain at what they make. How do we balance this? Well, you know, I think it's, it, 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 it is how, it, it's how much they make, but it's also the way in which they make it that I think is potentially, like, for instance, you know, you know, Bill Morneau, yes, he has a business acumen. I think that's very important. And I think for the Liberals, it was important, in a sense, to um, play both sides of the coin. They want to look like they're a social justice government, but bringing in Bill Morneau really probably assuaged some of the fears from Bay Street, because he's one of them. You know, right. he, he is of that kind of culture. 
I think part of the difficulty is that these people aren't always necessarily experts. I mean, you could just find an expert on tax reform or on the general finances from somebody who makes, you know, sub $200,000 a year and does it as a professional. I think with Bill Morneau, the challenge is that he has such high levels of wealth and such high levels of systemic intergenerational privilege that uh, it was impossible for him to kind of make the, the reforms that were proposed and ignore the reforms that would affect him and Trudeau and, and others like them without facing the political backlash. And I think that's just the reality. If the Liberals would have picked, you know, a CPA from Toronto who makes, you know, low six figures but is a, you know, a renowned tax expert, they would face a lot less political backlash because that person's, you know, family-owned uh, hedge fund or what have you um, isn't going to benefit from it. And I think that's political optics here. And, you know, you can't avoid it, but you might have to, you know, take the backlash of, of the billionaires, you know? Uh, obviously, uh, well, many have talked about, and the ethics, uh, the ethics commissioner is, is re-examining uh, conflict of interest in regard to his position as finance minister, decisions he's making, and, of course, his, his family business, which is involved in pension administration and such. Uh, at the end of the day, he, does he just, he has to be replaced, does he not? I mean, that we, can, can Trudeau continue to go forward with this... Uh, even with this perception perception around him that he has gained from decisions he's made? I mean, that's, that's, that's a tricky question. I mean, if you look at the polling, it certainly looks like Bill Morneau is very unpopular right now. Um, but, you know, the government um, isn't necessarily right now. And again, you know, they're, 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 if, they're, if they're worse off than they were on Election Day, it's not by very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in that sense, Trudeau might feel, if he really believes that Bill Morneau is a good minister and is a good asset to his team, and, and this is the political calculation, if he's confident, one, that Morneau didn't do anything illegal, which we, don't, we, we haven't seen any evidence of, but two, that Canadians won't perceive what he did as basically illegal, even if it wasn't, because the reality with a lot of rich people is that they can effectively do things that, that, that you know, avoid taxes but not evade them. But, you know, new polling from Britain, from Canada, from the United States has shown that, you know, regular middle and working class people basically see tax evasion, uh, when, when tax avoidance as tax evasion when it's at that systemic level. And Trudeau has to balance that. Um, you know, he might dump more. No, he's dumped other ministers. You know, he's shifted ministers around when they, you know, he kind of hung uh, Mariam Monsef out to dry on, on electoral reform and replaced her and shifted her to another profile. But, you know, I don't see him actually replacing Bill Morneau uh, right now. I, I, you know, if you look at the polls, it, it makes sense. But I think that he sees Morneau as an asset to him. They seem like they trust one another. And I think that Morneau is seen as a... Um, you know, a, a key segment of the business lobby of the Liberals, and they need to kind of keep that wing happy. So, in other words, is are are the are blue Liberals happy about him being there? It's 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 red Liberals that are concerned. And if those I mean, I, and if the numbers start to fall, will Morneau be a fall guy for Trudeau? He could be a fall guy, and I think maybe that's what he's thinking as well. It's you know, even if it if it's a decision about. Uh, if to dump him, but could also be a decision of when, if that's the decision. You do it too early, then, you know, yeah, you get rid of the controversy, but then 
you know, there's another new controversy. You do it too late, people will say it's it's not enough. But if you do it at the right time, it looks like Trudeau's decisive, that he's heard middle-class Canadians' concerns. You know, in terms of whether blue liberals or red liberals are, are happy, I mean, I don't know. It seems like Morneau, in a general sense, is someone there to assure the, the liberals' traditional base, which includes a lot of, you know, wealthy people, uh, wealthy people in some cases who have earned their wealth, but in many cases have, you know, benefited from their parents' success or grandparents' or great-grandparents' success, as it were, um, that that this the, the, they, they have this middle-class rhetoric, but really they're still there for the, for the, the base boys and, and the economic elites. And if you lose someone like Morneau, you risk losing that. Of course, Morneau's tax changes, and again, they're making the business lobby angry, not because they're targeting middle-class Canadians, because they're actually targeting people with money. They might not be targeting the uber-wealthy, but they are targeting people who have benefited disproportionately from the system. Is this the... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so Bill Morneau is is in a weird position right now. You know, he's there to be a blue liberal, you know, um, placeholder, but... You know, the conservatives are really mad. Like the conservative type per people, the people who shifted from or who may shift from Harper conservatives to Trudeau liberals, depending on the election and the issues at hand. You know, they're not happy with the proposed tax changes. Is is it more about the portfolio than it is the person? In other words, whoever you you put in there, I mean, sooner or later, you're going to get people angry. To a certain degree, yeah. I mean, the, the finance minister's portfolio is, you know, in the United States, it's, might, it's not really the biggest one, you know, maybe Secretary of State or Defense or what have you, but in Canada, the finance minister is effectively the second most important minister after the prime minister, um, and it's extremely high profile, and you're often called to make difficult decisions, um, big decisions, and in that sense, you'll always take political heat. But, you know, for people who have played it right, they've been able to kind of use it as a springboard. So, you know, it is true to say that Morneau can come out looking like the bad guy here because he has to implement, you know, a a policy direction that was flawed or that was unpopular or that was, you know, perhaps not communicated appropriately or effectively. But, you know, he still ultimately is responsible for his own work. And whereas someone like Paul Martin, um, you know, made his career – uh, out of being seen as an effective steward of the, the public purse, um, Bill Morneau right now doesn't really have that to go on right now. It's a different scenario. Paul Martin was, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the cuts. I'm going to be the tough guy. I know people aren't going to be happy, but they, 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 this needs to happen. Whereas Morneau right now is talking more about taxation, and, and I think that is maybe more politically volatile because it's seen as kind of, stoking, uh, you know, uh, either it's a, you know, the rich people are getting one over us or from, you know, maybe the more privileged, it's a the word about a soak the rich movement. Uh, ethics commissioner at the beginning said this was all fine. Now taking another look at this, does that matter? Um, at the end of the day, the rules were abided by, were they not? Or were they? Well, I mean, the ethics commissioner is looking at it. Yeah. I, so I, I mean, I can't comment. On, on, on that exactly. But initially again, didn't initially didn't find any it, issue with it. No, no, certainly, yeah. But if they're looking at it again, I mean, I would assume that there's at least something that the, the, the ethics commissioner uh, sees as a potential issue. In any case, yeah, you're certainly correct. Um, as of right now, there's been nothing that's 
formally violated any ethics or any laws. And I think that's important to note, and that if anything like that does happen, of course, like, he, he you know, we, we have to kind of assume he's innocent until he's, until he's not. But I think with politics, and this goes to Kathleen Wynne in Ontario, and even now Patrick Brown in Ontario, with allegations of, of, of tampering in local riding, sometimes, even if you're innocent, it doesn't necessarily matter because the public sees the optics. And I think the optics right now, globally with Paradise Papers and things like that, is that a lot of rich people, they don't need to break the law because the law is already in their favor. So the ethics commissioner's mm. report, even if it ultimately uh, you know, concludes he's done nothing wrong here, other people have done it before, other liberal and conservative finance ministers have done this in the past, you know, nothing to see here essentially. You know, if the, if the mindset from Canadians is that this is endemic of a kind of certain global, you know, tax offshore movement, you know, the ethics commissioner's report won't matter as much as people's indignation. Uh, this poll uh, basically designed to uh, gauge people's awareness of their uh, uh, cabinet ministers and assess them. Uh, Christy, uh, Christy Freeland, who, of course, is involved in the NAFTA negotiations, our foreign affairs minister, scoring very high. Does that mean we'll see her plucked from this and put into something else, or is this just too valuable at this point to tamper with? You know, I think on the, I think on the one, you don't want to mess with success there. Um, she's done, you know, uh, again, it, 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 whether you agree with her positions or not, I mean, she's, she's, she's you know, been tasked with a job, and she's done that job. Canada's, you know, so far NAFTA is, is still being preserved. Uh, the relationship there is, is obviously tricky, but it, it's there. There's been movement on, on other trade deals in Europe and in the Pacific. Um, I think she is also, you know, in, in the, in, she was also a kind of gifted, I think, a political boon by, you know, in the aftermath of the U.S. election, a lot of people who understand themselves as progressive are now, you know, very you know, antagonistic towards Russia, and Christia Freeland is effectively, she was targeted individually by the Russian state, and she has Ukrainian heritage, and so I think she's gotten a lot of personal, um, you know, support as standing up to Vladimir Putin and, you know, the Russian oligarchs and all of that. So I think leaving her where she is is probably the best point right now, especially, especially because it's not like, you know, all the major trade deals are done. Uh, we still have NAFTA. We still have TPP potentially. I think she's staying where she is. So, is she a better uh, uh, foreign affairs minister than Morneau is a finance minister? Or again, I mean, or is this you just can't compare the two portfolios because one's more popular than the other right now? I mean, part of being a minister is is, is being popular. You know, it's, it's you know, it's you, you want to cynical about it. It doesn't matter how good you are at your job. It's how good people see you are at your job. And right now she's better at her job than Bill Morneau is by, you know, 30 or 40 percent. She's solidly positive and Morneau solidly negative. I mean, that's what ultimately matters. But I mean, I think part of that is, you know, a minister is both, you know, I'm going to manage this, this department. I'm going to enact the vision of the government. Ideally, if it was based on the promises made during the election or what have you, or based on evidence, but it's also about effectively communicating your vision. And so maybe while the, the liberal policies are being put forward both through the finance department and through you know, foreign affairs, with Christia Freeland, she's better able to communicate that vision 
and whereas Morno is is not. And I think you know, it, but to be fair to Morno, you know, Christia Freeland's position right now is relatively non-combative domestically. Right, she's going abroad. Most Canadians now, still not fully uncontroversial, but most Canadians right now have generally a supportive view of trade. Most Canadians right now, again, in the age of Trump and Putin, see yeah. Canada's global you know, uh, engagement is very important. They want to be part of the global community. Whereas Bill Morneau, whenever you're dealing with, with tax reform, it's inherently political and it's inherently based on you know, the age-old concept, and it's not gone, of class conflict. And I think that when you're dealing with that, you're always going to make some people angry. So, so Christia Freeland gets to go abroad and talk about Canada, and, and Justin Trudeau right now has kind of reinvigorated this image of Canada as, you know, mm-hmm. this place that's very nice and friendly and all of this, and she's part of that, that entourage, whereas Bill Morneau, in a sense, does have to do the work of, of you know, who's going to win and lose in the tax system. And, and, and again, that's always political in a way that foreign affairs sometimes isn't. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in History at the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, cell phones. Should parents wait until grade 8 to get a smartphone? Some parents think that grade 8 is the perfect time. What's the purpose of the cell phone? Uh, access to the internet, yak with all the friends, or just be a tool so parents can get a hold of kids when there's an emergency or vice versa. A lot of gray there. Let's bring in Gary Derenfelt, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. He is with us now. Gary, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you get asked this question a lot. Oh, my goodness. And, and whenever I do my parenting uh, workshops, this is like the issue when do i get the kid a smartphone or a tablet and what are the rules for use and my kid won't turn it off at night and we no longer know what anyone's face looks like if it's not looking at their lap (laughs) so is it different for every kid or is there a rule of thumb here well you know when we look at the research um and the effects of these devices on kids First of all, you know, let's go back to 2007. That's when the iPhone came out. 2008. That's when the Android operating system came out. <laughs> it's like these things have been with us for a hundred years. Well, you know, it's been with us for ten years, yeah. and with each successive year, the age of which um, people are adopting them has been getting younger and younger and younger. And along with the rise of sales of smartphones we are consistently also seeing a rise in childhood anxiety. Mm. And so while these things are kind of like water and everyone has a glass, um, the whole thing has been one big social experiment. We didn't know what kind of impact this would have on us and our kids. And so what we're learning is that as much as there are some fabulous aspects having a smartphone, there are some uh, dangerous mm-hmm. risk aspects that our kids are subject to this cyberbullying, that their, um, their brains are being tweaked to have hits of dopamine that is akin to putting a kid on cocaine. And so what does that do to attention, instant gratification, 
and, and, and this, this anxiety. So 10 years after the fact, we're starting to see some real pushback from parents who are, and the research is saying, you know, if you can at least wait until they're about 12 years of age, you begin to minimize some of the, the, the risks, uh, some of the, the negative um, impacts of these devices. It's funny, uh, I, 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 I did my commentary on this uh, yesterday for today, and I was, uh, we're, I was home last night, and I just finished work in the office, and my son was in there goofing around, and uh, I guess he opened up one of the drawers of the old desk and, and, and found something there. And he's like, Dad, what's this? So, you know, immediately it's like, oh, my God, what's he found? And um, it turned out to be a digital camera. <laughs> he's 10 years old. He had no idea what it was, even though as he eventually used his technical prowess to, you know, to get it all working again, even functions that I didn't even know it had way back when, there were pictures of him on it. So wow. it's not that old. It, it, but for me, it was just a, you know, a, a, one of those moments where you realize, my goodness, that is how quickly this technology advances. It's not like I'm showing him a film camera. It was a digital camera. I know, and it's already obsolete. Exactly. Yeah, so there's a movement started down in Texas. Some parent thought it's a good idea. Maybe we can uh, have parents kind of band together sign a kind of parental contract or petition that says we're not going to get our kids uh, a smartphone until they're in at least the eighth grade. And this has hit the news, and it's getting up ahead of steam. And underneath it is the issue of uh, peer pressure. So when your kid comes home and says, yeah, but the other kid got it, why can't I? Parents are now banding together with uh, a common voice saying, we're all in agreement, none of us are going to get our kids a phone until they're at least in the eighth grade. And it, you know, this pushback now by the parents, parents need peer support to parent their kids these days. Yeah. You know, it's funny, um, both my kids play sports, and um, with my son, it got to the point where, and this started when he was playing baseball uh, over the summer, uh, no devices and no fidget spinners, please, on the bench. Like, mm. we're here to play baseball. And, and the same thing with hockey. It's like they had to make a point of, hey, kids, no devices in the locker room. We're here to, to teach you how to play and, and all that sort of stuff. So clearly it's got to that point where these sort of restrictions have got to be put in place. You know, it's funny because in my parenting workshops, uh, frequently I come to a point where I ask parents to bring out their own smartphones and I introduce them to a feature, and it's called the off button. And I show them my phone. <laughs> Have they ever used that before? Exactly. I press the off button, and the phone asks me, are you sure you want to turn me off? And I have to press yes. Yeah, it takes forever. But that's not enough. Then it asks me again, are you sure? <laughs> Does it at any point say, please, don't go, Gary. Come back. And so this is, you know, when we think about anxiety, to, be asked, to have to go to, through three operations to turn off my phone so that I'm now second-guessing myself. Isn't that what anxiety is all about? And whenever I do this, uh, um, 80 to 90% of the folks in the room do turn off the phone. There's always t uh, 10 to 20% of people who will not, despite my saying, you must do this, this is an experiment, we got to, you know, I'll tell you why afterwards, 10 to 20% don't. Oh, what if my kid... And then I ask them afterwards, why didn't you? 
oh, I'm worried about this, oh, I'm worried about that, oh, I didn't think I have to. And then we talk about, and now what do you think your kid's experience is? So, you know, I like to point out to parents how impactful these devices are on us. And, of course, of the 80% that did turn off the phone, half of them are now sitting with anxiety, <laughs> needing to turn the phone back on. Now you got to hold it. You and they hold can't it. even listen to me and concentrate on the workshop because they're sitting on pins and needles. Uh, one problem at a time, please, Gary. We can't solve the world in one night. But I, I, this, is, this is a dramatic way of demonstrating to parents, and now you wonder what your kid's going through. Well, and I found this out, um, that the device is also a great disciplinary tool. You remove that from their possession. My goodness, uh, I, I don't think there's anything. Forget, forget spanking. Are you kidding me? This is miles away ahead of that. Um, uh, but uh, there, there's two things I notice. It's very hard to do. And also the reaction can be unbelievable. It's like, you got to calm down about this. It's only a device. No, it's crack cocaine. Boy, is it ever, Gary. And, and it's not the device. It's the way it manipulates the pleasure receptors in our brain and dopamine uh, in our brain. And so these devices uh, are forever triggering us a hit of feeling good. And... The thought of turning that off, it's like me saying to you, give me your crack cocaine, you're not allowed to smoke it for a couple of hours. You're going to literally go through withdrawal. Well, and you know, I remember watching the Facebook movie way back when and the story of Mark Zuckerberg and such, and the whole that was the whole idea behind this. The mm. whole idea was to do this. Mm. They knew exactly what they were doing when they set out to do it. It's about being inclusive. It's about everybody making everybody feel like they've got lots and lots and lots of friends developed by a guy that didn't have any. <laughs> it's very bizarre. <laughs> oh, the irony. So, you know, regardless of what age you give the device to your kids, parents, I urge you to set parameters for the use and stick to it like glue. Yeah, you have because to. Because the degree to which you stick to it like glue, that will become your kid's normal mm-hmm. and you know basic rules not at the dinner table uh not in the bedroom uh when you're going to sleep um can't be turned on in the morning before whatever has to be done right and there has to be another island of respite from the device when you're doing your homework and you know what that's another thing too is they are so involved with their homework with them mm. and but you have to be constantly monitoring to make sure it's the homework that they're doing. Right. Because they're, the, the, two, the two are married together now. Yeah. And forget working on a trust model where I say, oh, I trust my kid. Yeah. And if they tell me they aren't looking at it at those times, you know, no. I believe them. No, it's too addictive. The device has to be in another place away, literally turned off. Otherwise, it's, it's too um, attractive. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, for me, the, uh, the last straw is the dinner table. Like I don't want anything around there. It, it's because and we've had this discussion before I, I've yep. sat in restaurants and watched 12 people sit around a dinner table and it's totally quiet cause they're all on their devices and every single age. Uh, is that a good place to start? Is that a good place to, you know, sort of draw that's, the line in that, the sand? That's as good a place as any, you know, going back to the 1980s, 
uh, we used to clamor to get our driver's license at age 16. Yeah. And we learned that if we can delay getting the license, if we can have uh, driver's education, if we limit the number of, of uh, people in the car during our first year of driving, there's all, you know, all these different things that the degree, to we, the degree to which we would do that, we reduce the risk of our young drivers being involved in car crashes. Mm-hmm. And no parent was able to follow through with that. So the province of Ontario um, in the, gee whiz, the 1990s or so, or late 80s, came up with graduated licensing. Yeah. It became the law of the land that you know only the 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 the, the student driver and and a licensed driver uh at least four years older um uh, and then when you had your provisional license um only one person in the car and so with that parents had the support of the government to to place in a sense restrictions during a teenager's learning to drive the car now fast forward 2017 and we have a movement afoot out of the U.S. that is, again, helping parents aggregate, you know, um, band together to, again, set limits and restrictions on uh, now the teen's use of the smartphone. It's amazing. We do need um, support between parents to make this happen. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good movement. Um, I would encourage parents to look for that on Facebook or the Internet See what the forum is. Share it with their friends. You'll be doing your kids a favor. What will life be like when our kids become parents? Well, you know, isn't that uh, a sixty-four thousand dollar question? Uh, will our kids um, have the ability to concentrate on the needs of their own kids? Will there ever be a spoken word in the house again? Yeah. So, I, you know, um, I really like this movement happening out of the U.S. because it gives me hope. That, we're, that we may put, and, and this rarely happens, but we may put the genie back in the bottle. We may gain some semblance of control over these devices and their impact over our lives, because uh, right now it's out of control. But won't it take a society resisting against it in order for that to happen? And what would trigger that? Well, Like all of a sudden it's like, can you imagine if society all of a sudden realizes this? We've just become a, a world of clones. We're not even speaking to each other. We're not even whatever. Sort of the point where if you pull out your cell phone, at, say, at a, at a dinner table at a restaurant, people will look at you as if you just lit up a cigarette. I know. I know. You know, uh, we may be getting to that. And this kind of movement, you know, signing up, uh, wait until eight, uh, meaning the eighth grade for your kids, these kind of movements are going to bring about that kind of social change where where we can better manage um, technology, hopefully. Uh, you know, uh, almost saying that, uh, when you said that, that line, waiting until 8, and not that I'm drawing the parallel, but it, it would seem if you were having that discussion back in the 80s and 90s, you'd be talking about sex. You wouldn't be talking about devices. <laughs> you know what sex, I mean? Alcohol, uh, driving a car, yeah. um, and now, you know, we've, as it pertains to marijuana as well, we do recognize that whatever we think of car, drugs, alcohol, marijuana, whatever we think about it, there are ages for which it's people are too young to manage these things. We recognize that. And so, you know, when you hand your ch- child a smartphone, like when I say to parents, would you ever drop your 
kid off in downtown Toronto and leave them for the day unattended. Because hmm. <laughs> that's what you're doing with a smartphone. Hmm. You're leaving them open, exposed to everything in the world, yeah. not just the good, yeah. but also the bad. And, you know, I can, I can, I've got a 10 and a 15-year-old, and, you know, we openly talk about sex which stuns me because my youngest is in grade five. Mm. But the knowledge is unbelievable. And that's exactly why we need the changes in the sex ed curriculum, because they're talking about things we weren't talking about because they're exposed to them. Well, and whether you want to close down the house and put them in a box for the rest of, the, the rest of their life, they're still going to get access to this. Absolutely. It's ubiquitous. You can download free porn that will show you people doing anything with anyone or anything. And so our kids have access to that uh, when left unsupervised. And that is why we had to change the sex ed program. Otherwise, that is their education. Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. A parent should wait until their child is in the eighth grade to get a smartphone. Is that a good age? Uh, feel free to offer your opinion. Gary, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Fabulous chatting with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.